Good afternoon, everyone. I would like to welcome everyone to the second of this year's President's Distinguished Lecture Series. As I think many of you know, this lecture series was created uh, three years ago as an opportunity for those of us who have lived for many years and for a few years in the Princeton community uh, to hear from and to learn from our own colleagues. Uh, it is often the case that our colleagues are off giving distinguished lectures elsewhere. And uh, this is, for me, has been just a simply wonderful experience to be able to hear uh, the extraordinary work that is going on by our own faculty. We are greatly privileged today to have as the lecturer uh, Professor Anthony Kwame Apia who is the Lawrence S. Rockefeller University Professor of Philosophy and of the University uh, Center for Human Values. Uh, before we begin with this today's lecture, I would just like to remind everyone that the third lecture in this series is going to be held on March the 3rd, and it will be given by Professor Marta Tienda of Sociology and the Woodrow Wilson School. And all of you who know Marta, I know that we are going to have a lively lecture indeed on that day, so I hope you will be able to join us then as well. To introduce Professor Appiah, I have asked Mark Johnston, uh, the Chair of Philosophy, and he has graciously agreed. I would just like to say a few words of introduction about Mark. <laughs> Mark, yes, this is a, a domino effect here. Mark is a fine exemplar of the great Princeton tradition of distinguished philosophers who either hail from Australia or who adopt it as their home away from home uh, during their time at Princeton. It has something to do with the deep thoughts that are stimulated in the presence of koala bears, I understand. <laughs> After his first degree at the University of Melbourne, Mark arrived at Princeton to work on his doctorate with Saul Kripke and David Lewis, the latter a member of that rarefied group that I just mentioned. Since that time, with the exception of distinguished visiting professorships at New York University, Monash, and Melbourne Universities, he has been a valued member of our faculty and has chaired the Department of Philosophy since 1998. Mark has written extensively about metaphysics, epistemology, philosophy of mind, and value theory. He's currently working on a collection of his essays, including one titled The Obscure Object of Hallucination, and a monograph defending and illustrating the method of real definition in metaphysics. His university service has included membership on the Committee on Appointments and Advancements and his leadership of a faculty committee that reformulated Princeton's intellectual property policy. His membership on the President's Search Committee in 2000-2001 resulted in a wonderful outcome for me, <laughs> for which I shall be eternally in his debt although it remains to be seen how wonderful the outcome will be for Princeton. A man whose interests range from rugby to financial markets, Mark has been an extraordinary university citizen. Mark. Mark. 
Uh, well, uh, Shirley has left no surprise about who our speaker is today. Uh, I just want to begin by talking about Anthony personally. As, as many of you know, Anthony is an extraordinary person. Among many other things, he's a novelist, a Ghanaian, a noble personage of the Ashanti kingdom, an internationalist like his father before him, and lately, with his life partner, Henry Finder, a tender of sheep in bucolic Pennington, New Jersey. <laughs> but today I have the particular pleasure of introducing Anthony Appiah as a philosopher. So I want to take just a moment to say what a philosopher is and what a philosopher does. The range of philosophy is simply vast. It stretches from the most abstruse questions of metamathematics through the interpretation of quantum mechanics and quantum field theory across the theory of knowledge, the philosophy of mind and language, through to ethics, aesthetics, and political theory. Then there is the history of the subject of philosophy, which as a history stands in a unique relation to the contemporary practice of philosophy. What could possibly unite this vast range of domains in which philosophers work? Well, the unity condition of philosophy, if it's not to be tendentious, has to be given in mostly negative terms. Something like this. The domains that fall within the province of philosophy are domains in which the required understanding cannot be achieved, or cannot yet be achieved, just by proving another theorem, or doing another experiment, or inventing another device, or conducting another survey. Philosophy is then the residuum of hard questions that are not amenable to those familiar methods. And rightly or wrongly, the best philosophers often are found to believe in the portability of philosophical understanding. Understanding acquired in one domain helps us to see at least the lineaments of what it would take to understand another domain. The philosophical ability to understand is thus like a muscle that strengthens with its own exercise so that the desire to understand can become omnivorous and irresistible. But there is a particular domain that raises a deep anxiety about this uncontained ambition of philosophy, and that is the domain of ethics. Arguably, ethical understanding comes not merely from the observation of mankind, but from personal and political conflict and struggle. It comes from standing for something distinctive and standing by it in the face of adversity. But philosophers today are invariably academics. Now, it's an exaggeration. It's, of course, an exaggeration to think of academia as a sort of moral playpen in which the most serious ethical challenges are not to mess with one's students and to get their papers in on time. Still, these days, the life of a serious academic is seldom a life of personal and political conflict and struggle. So where does philosophy now look for the impetus to ethical understanding? Well, it would be wonderful if we could look to someone of dual 
or multiple identity to an outsider who is also a consummate insider, to a philosopher who has made important contributions to many of the areas that fall within the domain of philosophy. And we have just such a philosopher with us today in the person of Anthony Appiah. Anthony began his philosophical life working on abstruse questions in formal semantics, questions about the proper form of a theory of meaning for a language. He then began to emerge as a leading philosopher of race and culture. When, in the New York Times, Charles Johnson reviewed Anthony's collection of essays entitled In My Father's House, Johnson wrote, Appiah delivers what may very well be one of the handful of theoretical works on race that will help us preserve our humanity. Anthony is not only a very accomplished philosopher across a wide range of areas, he is also, as you will soon see, a speaker of great charm and intelligence. And as his chair, I might also add that he does get his students' papers in on time. <laughs> Without any further ado, I give you Anthony Appiah. Um, that was a very generous and helpful introduction. Thank you very much. Um, for those of you who are worried about who I'm going to introduce, <laughs> uh, I thought what I would do is uh, solve the apparently insoluble problem by uh, briefly introducing the president, thus completing the circle. But <laughs> then it occurred to me you wouldn't have come to a president's lecture unless you already knew who she was. Um, this is a very great honor, and I'm delighted to be able to talk, talk to you today on this topic, which I'm working on at the moment, the topic of the ethics of identity. Um, I think I printed this large enough that I don't need my glasses. Depending upon how you look at it, John Stuart Mill's celebrated education was either a case study in individuality or a vigorous attempt to erase it. He himself seems to have been unable to decide which. He called his education the experiment, and the account he provided in his autobiography uh, ensured that it would become the stuff of legend. He was learning Greek at the age of three, and by the time he was 12, he had read the whole of Herodotus, a fair amount of Xenophon, Virgil's Eclogues, and the first six books of the Aeneid, most of Horace, and the major works of Sophocles, Euripides, Polybius, Plato, and Aristotle, among others. After studying... Um, Pope's Homer, he set about composing a, quote, continuation of the Iliad, at first on whim and then at his father's command. He'd also made serious forays into geometry, algebra, and differential calculus. The young Mill was kept away as much as possible from the corrupting influence of other boys, the contagion, as he put it, of vulgar modes of thought and feeling. And so in his 14th year, when he was about to meet some new people beyond the range of his father's supervision... James Mill took his son for a walk in Hyde Park beforehand to prepare him for what he might expect to encounter. If he found he was ahead of other children, he must attribute it not to his own superiority, but to the particular rigors of his intellectual upbringing. 
Quote, it was no matter of praise to me if I knew more than those who had not had a similar advantage, but the deepest disgrace to me if I did not. This was the first inkling Mill had that he was precocious, and he had every reason to be astonished. Quote, if I thought anything about myself, it was that I was rather backward in my studies, he recounts, since I always found myself so in comparison with what my father expected of me. But James Mill was a man with a mission, and it was his eldest son's appointed role to carry forward the mission. James, as Jeremy Bentham's foremost disciple, was molding yet another disciple, someone who, trained in accordance with Benthamite principles, would extend and promulgate the Grand Raisonneur's Creed for a new era. He was, so to speak, the samurai's son. In the event, self-development was to be a central theme of Mill's thought, and indeed a main element of his complaint against his intellectual patrimony. When he was 24, he wrote to his friend John Sterling about the loneliness that had come to overwhelm him. There is now no human being with whom I can associate on terms of equality who acknowledges a common object with me, or with whom I can cooperate, even in any practical undertaking, without feeling that I am only using a man whose purposes are different as an instrument for the furtherance of my own. And his sensitivity about using another in this way surely flows from his sense that he himself had been thus used, that he had been conscripted into a master plan that was not his own. Mill memorably wrote about the great crisis in his life, a sort of midlife crisis which, as befitted his precocity, visited when he was 20, <laughs> and the spiral of anomie into which he descended during the winter of 1826. In this frame of mind, it occurred to me to put the question directly to myself. Suppose that all your objects in life were realized, that all the changes in institutions and opinions which you are looking forward to could be completely affected at this very instant. Would this be a great joy and happiness to you? And an irrepressible self-consciousness distinctly answer, no. At this, my heart sank within me. The whole foundation on which my life was constructed fell down. He pulled out of it, stepped blinking into the light, but for a long time thereafter found himself dazed and adrift. Intent on deprogramming himself from the cult of Bentham, he plunged into an uncritical eclecticism. Unwilling to exercise his perhaps overdeveloped facility, uh, faculties of discrimination, he was determinedly, even perversely, receptive to the arguments of those he would once have considered the embodiment of capital E error whether the breathless utopianism of the Sansimonians or the murky Teutonic mysticisms of Coleridge and Carlyle. When intellectual direction returned to his life, it was through the agency of his new friend and soulmate, Mrs. Harriet Hardy Taylor. Quote, My great readiness and eagerness to learn from everybody and to make room in my opinions for every new, opinion, uh, new acquisition by adjusting the old and the new to one another might, but for her steadying influence, have seduced me into modifying my early opinions too much, he would write. It was a relationship that was greeted with considerable censure, not least by James Mill, and for that matter by her husband. <laughs> so there's some irony that it was she, more than anyone, who seems to have returned this rudderless craft he had become to the tenets of his patrimonial cause. His love for her was at once rebellion and restoration, and the beginning of an intellectual partnership that spanned almost three decades. Only when Mrs. Taylor was widowed in 1851 could she and Mill live together as man and wife, 
And in the mid-1850s, their collaboration bore its greatest fruit, On Liberty, surely the most widely read work of political philosophy in the English language. I retell this familiar story because so many of the themes that preoccupied Mill's social and political thought wend their way through his life. It's a rare convenience. Buridan's ass didn't tap out any contributions to decision theory before succumbing to starvation. Uh, Paul Gogar, the emblem and avatar of Bernard Williams' famous analysis of moral luck, was not himself a moral philosopher. Yet Mill's concern with self-development and experimentation was a matter of both philosophical inquiry and personal experience. On Liberty is an impasto of influences, ranging from German Romanticism by way of uh, von Humboldt and Coleridge, to the sturdy, each person counts for one equality and tolerance that were Mill's intellectual birthright. But my interest in Mill's work is essentially and tangentially presentist. For it, his life and work, Adam breaks the main themes of my own present thinking, as it does so many topics in modern liberal political theory. Consider his emphasis on the importance of diversity, his recognition of the irreducibly plural nature of human values, his insistence that the state has a role in promoting human flourishing, broadly construed, his effort to elaborate a notion of well-being that was at once individualist and in ways that are sometimes overlooked, profoundly social. Finally, his robust ideal of individuality mobilizes, as we'll see, the critical notions of autonomy and identity. My focus on Mill is not by way of argumentum ad veripundiam. I don't suppose, nor did he, that his opinions represented the last word. But none before him, and I am inclined to say none since, charted out the, ter the terrain as carefully and clearly as he did. We may cultivate a different garden, but we do so on soil that he fenced in and terraced. If it were felt that the free development of individuality is one of the leading essentials of well-being, that it is not only a coordinate element with all that is designated by the terms civilization, instruction, education, culture, but is itself a necessary part and condition of all those things, there would be no danger that liberty should be undervalued, and the adjustment of the boundaries between it and social control would present no extraordinary difficulty. So Mill wrote in the book's celebrated chapter three on individuality as one of the elements of well-being. And it's a powerful proposal, for it seems to suggest that individuality could be taken as prior even to the book's titular subject, liberty itself. Our capacity to use all our, our faculties in our individual ways was at least in part what made liberty valuable to us. In Mill's accounting, individuality doesn't merely conduce to its constitutive of social good. And he returns to the point, lest anyone miss it. Having said that individuality is the same thing with development and that it is only the cultivation of individuality which produces or can produce well-developed human beings, I might here close the argument. For what more or better can be said of any condition of human affairs than that it brings human beings themselves nearer to the best thing they can be, or what worse can be said of any obstruction to good than that it prevents this? Broadly speaking, Mill offers two kinds of arguments for liberty in the book. First, there are arguments that liberty will have good effects. His most famous arguments for freedom of expression assume that we will find the truth more often and more easily if we allow our opinions to be tested in public debate in what we now call 
the marketplace of ideas. But a second kind of argument is that the cultivation of one's individuality is itself a part of well-being, something good in itself. Here, liberty is not a means to an end, but part of the end. For individuality means, among other things, choosing for myself instead of being shaped by the constraint of political or social sanction. Individuals invent themselves rather than aping models, and that, Mill thinks, is in itself a good thing. It was part of Mill's view, in other words, that freedom mattered just because it, not just because it enabled other things, such as the discovery of truth, but also because without it people couldn't develop the individuality that is an essential element of human good. As he writes, He who lets the world, or his own portion of it, choose his plan of life for him has no need for any other faculty than the ape-like one of imitation. He who chooses his plan for himself employs all his faculties. He must use observation to see, reasoning and judgment to foresee, activity to gather materials for decision, discrimination to decide, and when he has decided firmness and self-control, to hold to his deliberate decision. And these qualities he requires and exercises exactly in proportion as the part of his conduct which he determines, according to his own judgment and feelings, is a large one. It is possible that he might be guided in some good path and kept out of harm's way without any of these things, but what will be his comparative worth as a human being? It really is of importance, not only what men do, but what manner of men they are that do it. Individuality is not so much a state to be achieved as a mode of life to be pursued. Mill says that it's important that one choose one's own plan of life, and liberty consists, at least in part, in providing the conditions under which a choice among acceptable options is possible. But one must choose one's own plan of life not, not because one will necessarily make the wisest choices, Indeed, one might make poor choices. What matters most about a plan of life, Mill's insistence on the point is especially plangent, coming from James and Jeremy's great experiment, is simply that it be chosen by the person whose life it is. Quote, if a person possesses any tolerable amount of common sense and experience, his own mode of laying out his existence is best, not because it is best in itself, but because it is his own mode. Not only is exercising one's autonomy valuable in itself, but such exercise leads to self-development, to the cultivation of one's faculties of observation, reason, and judgment. Developing the capacity for autonomy is necessary for human well-being, which is why it matters not just what people choose, but what manner of men they are that do it. So Mill invokes individuality to refer both to the precondition and to the result of such choice-making. The account of individuality that Mill offers in Chapter 3 of On Liberty doesn't distinguish consistently, I think, between the idea that it's good to be different from other people and the idea that it's good to be self-created, to be someone who, quote, chooses his plan for himself. Nor, I should say, is he always clear that he is defending the position that it's good in itself for us to have played a central role in shaping ourselves, in developing our individualities. Still, I think it's best to read Mill as arguing not just for diversity, being different, but also for the claim that the enterprise of self-creation is itself a good. For I might choose a plan of life that was, as it happened, very like somebody else's, and still not be merely aping them, following them blindly as a model. I wouldn't then be contributing to diversity, so in one sense I wouldn't be very individual, but I would still be constructing my own, in the other sense, individual, plan of life. 
on liberty to defend freedom because only free people can take full command of their own lives. Why does Mill insist that individuality is something that develops in coordination with what he calls a plan of life? His training as a utilitarian means that he wouldn't have separated well-being uh, generally from the satisfaction of wants. But he was well aware that to make sense of such wants, we had to see them as structured in particular ways. Our immediate desires and preferences so often run contrary to other longer-term ones. We wish to have written a book, but we don't wish to write one. <laughs> we wish to ace our gross anatomy exam, but we don't wish to study for it on this sunny afternoon. It's for this reason that we devise all manner of mechanisms to bind ourselves, so that, as we often say, we force ourselves to do what our interest requires. Moreover, many of our goals are clearly intermediate in nature, subordinate to more comprehensive goals. You want to ace your gross anatomy exam because you want to be a surgeon. You want to be a surgeon because you want to mend cleft palates in Burkina Faso, or, as the case may be, carve retrousse noses in Beverly Hills. And these ambitions may be in the service of still other ambitions. It's worth bearing in mind that for Mill, the activity of choosing freely had a rational dimension, was bound up in observation, reason, judgment, deliberation. The very currency such talk of plans has acquired in contemporary liberal political theory has also invited some justifiably gimlet-eyed scrutiny. <laughs> Quote, in general, people do not and cannot make an overall choice of a total plan of life, J.L. Mackey observes. I should have done that in an Australian accent. <laughs> they choose successively to pursue various activities from time to time, not once and for all. Daniel Bell, in a critique of the sort of liberal individualism associated with Jack Rawls, maintains, quote, that people do not necessarily have a, quote, higher order interest in rationally choosing their career and marriage partner, as opposed to following their instincts, striving for ends and goals set for them by others, family, friends, community groups, the government, God and letting fate, fate do the rest of the work. This, combined with an awareness of the unchosen nature of most of our social attachments, undermines those justifications for a liberal form of social organization founded on the value of reflective choice." End quote. And Michael Sloat has raised concerns about the ways in which such plans of life mobilize preferences over time. Sometimes, given certain future uncertainties, we will be better served if we cultivate a measure of passivity of watchful waiting. It's also the case that, as Slope puts it, rational life planfulness is a virtue with a temporal aspect. It's not advisable for children to arrive at hard and fast uh, decisions about their careers because that activity requires the sort of prudence they're unlikely to possess. What's more, there are important human goods, like love or friendship, that we can't exactly plan for. These critics have a point. No doubt such talk of plans can be misleading. If we imagine that people stride around with a neatly folded blueprint of their lives tucked into their back pocket, if we imagine life plans to be singular and fixed rather than multiple and constantly shifting, plans and projects can evolve, and to speak of them should not commit us to the notion that there's one optimal plan for each individual. Mill himself didn't labor under any such illusions. Nobody would have planned to fall in love with another man's wife and spend the next two decades in a nerve-wracking menage a trois. <laughs> Precisely because of his temperamental constancy, he was acutely aware of the ways in which his thought and goals shifted over time. 
That's one reason he came to think that the exploration of the ends of life would yield to what in Non Liberty he calls experiments in living. Although he had reason to know that conducting an experiment and having one conducted upon you were two different things. The plan of life then serves as a way of integrating one's purposes over time, of fitting together the different things one values. The fulfillment of goals that flow from such a plan, our ground projects and commitments, has more value than the satisfaction of a fleeting desire. In particular, Mill says, that it matters because, in effect, the life plan is an expression of my individuality, of who I am. And in this sense, a desire that flows from a value that itself derives from a life plan is more important than a desire such as a bare, bare appetite that I just happen to have. For the one that follows from the plan uh, flows from reflective choices, commitments, and not just passing fancy. This ideal of self-authorship strikes a popular chord. We all know the sentiment in the form that the great American philosopher Frank Sinatra made famous. In a song in which the character reviews his life towards its end, Mr. Sinatra sings, which I won't, <laughs> I've lived a life that's full, I've traveled each and every highway, but more, much more than this, I did it my way. If my choosing it is part of what makes my life plan good, then imposing on me a plan of life, even one that is in other respects an enviable one, is depriving me of a certain kind of good. For a person of a liberal disposition, my life's shape is up to me, even if I make a life that's objectively less good than a life I could have made, provided that I've done my duty towards others. All of us could no doubt have made better lives than we have, but that, Mill says, is no reason for others to attempt to force those better lives upon us. And yet this scenario of self-chosen individuality invites a couple of worries, too. First, it's hard to accept the idea that certain values derived from my choices, uh, that the value of certain things derives from my choices, if those choices themselves are just arbitrary. Why should the mere fact that I have laid out my existence mean that it's the best, especially if it's not the best in itself, as Mill said? Suppose, for example, I adopt a life as a solitary traveler around the world, free of entanglements with family and community, settling for a few months here and there, making what little money I need by giving English lessons to businessmen and women. You recognize the scenario. <laughs> my parents tell me that I'm wasting my life as a scholar gypsy, that I have a good education, talent as a musician, and a great gift for friendship, all of which are being put to no use. You don't have to be a communitarian to wonder whether it's a satisfactory response to say only that I have considered the options and that this is the way I have chosen. Don't I need to say something about what this way makes possible for me and for those I meet? Or about what other talents of mine it makes use of? It's one thing to say that the government or society or your parents ought not to stop you from wasting your life if you choose to. It's another to say that wasting your own life in your own way is good because it is your own way. It's because you chose to waste your life. This may be why Mill seesaws between arguing that I am in the optimal position to decide what plan of life is best, best for me, given what he calls the mental, moral, and aesthetic stature of which I'm capable, and the more radical view that the mere fact that I have chosen a plan of life recommends it. From the former view, of course, my choice is not arbitrary. It reflects the facts of my capacities. And given that I have enough common sense and experience, I'm likely to do a better job than anybody else, 
of making a life that fits those capacities. For one thing, I have more at stake than most other people <coughs> my life. On this view, I discover a life for myself based on the facts of my nature and my place in the world, but on the latter, my role is as an originator of value, not as discoverer of it. Here, the charge against individuality, then, is that it is arbitrary. Let me raise a second worry with the picture of self-chosen individuality that I've been ascribing to Mill. At times, Mill's way of talking can suggest a rather unattractive form, not of individuality, but of individualism, in which the aim is, as it were, to make a life in which you yourself matter most. Um, this conception has sometimes been prettified with a particular account of the unfettered human soul. The results find memorable expression in the misty-eyed antinomianism of Oscar Wilde's Soul of Man Under Socialism, in which once the shackles of convention are thrown off, some sort of dewy and flower-strown pre-Raphaelitism will reign. Quote, it will be a marvelous thing, the true personality of man, when we see it. It will grow natural and simply flower-like, or as a dispute. It will not prove things. It will know everything. And it will not busy itself. And yet it will not busy itself about knowledge. And so, breathlessly on. <laughs> this is the sort of moral kitsch that gives individuality a bad name. <laughs> And Mill does argue for a view of oneself as a project in a way that might be read as suggesting that self-cultivation and sociability are competing values, though each has its own place. This can lead us to think that the good of individuality is reined in, on, in by or traded off against the goods of sociability so that there's an intrinsic opposition between self and society. It can lead us to think that political institutions which develop and reflect the value of sociability are always a source of constraint on our individuality. And here the charge against individuality is that it's unsociable. Now to show that uh, individuality, or more boldly, Gesundheit, uh, uh, self-creation, doesn't necessarily succumb to these pitfalls is not to show that it isn't susceptible to them. But right away we can establish that individuality needn't involve either arbitrariness or unsociability. A plan of life for Mill was likely to include, as his did, family and friends, and might include, as his did, public service. So a plan of life isn't like an engineer's plan. <laughs> it doesn't map out all the important and many unimportant features of our life in advance. These plans are rather mutable sets of organizing aims, aims within which you can fit a daily choice and a long-term vision. To make the idea clearer, it helps, I think, to notice that when asked what someone's plan is, the most natural answer will often be framed in terms of living as. Living as, say, a philosopher, living as a novelist, living as my partner's lover, my friend's friend, my sister's brother, the uncle of my nephews and nieces, the teacher of my students. What structures our sense of a life, then, is less uh, like a blueprint and more like what we nowadays call an identity. For to speak of living as is to speak of identities. Now, at this point, it may be helpful to consider two rival pictures of what is involved in shaping one's individuality. One, a picture that comes from Romanticism, is the idea of finding oneself, of discovering by means of reflection or a careful attention to the world a meaning for one's life that is already there, waiting to be found. This is a vision we can call authenticity. It's a matter of being true to who you already really are, or would be if it weren't for distorting influences. 
the soul of man under socialism is a locus classicus, classicus of, this vision, of this vision. The personality of man will be as wonderful as the personality of a child. It's already given. The other picture, the existentialist picture, let's call it, acknowledging that this is a caricature, is one in which, as the doctrine goes, existence precedes essence. That is, you exist first and then have to decide what to exist as, who to be, afterwards. On an extreme version of this view, we have to make a self up, as it were, out of nothing, like God at the creation. And individuality is valuable because only a person who has made a self has a life worth living. But neither of these pictures, of course, is right. The authenticity picture is wrong because it suggests that there's no role for creativity in making a self, that the self is already and in its totality fixed by our natures. Mill was rightly emphatic that we do have such a role, however constrained we may be by our nature and our circumstances. Man has, to a certain extent, he said, a power to alter his character. This is from, surprisingly perhaps, a system of logic. His character is formed by his circumstances, including the, among these his particular organization, but his own desire to mold it in a particular way is one of these circumstances, and by no means one of the least influential. We cannot indeed directly will to be different from what we are, but neither did those who are supposed to have formed our character directly will that we should be what we are. Their will had no direct power except over their own actions. They made us what they did make us by willing not the end, but the requisite means. And we have, when our habits are not too inveterate, and, and we, when our habits are not too inveterate, can, by similarly willing the requisite means, make ourselves different. If they could place us, if they could place us under the influence of certain circumstances, we, in like manner, can place ourselves under the influence of other circumstances. We are exactly as capable of making our own character, if we will, as others are of making it for us. The end of the quote. Perhaps now it's less surprising that it comes from a system of logic. <laughs> By the same token, the existentialist picture is wrong because it suggests that there is only creativity, that there's nothing for us to respond to, nothing out of which to do the construction. Human nature is not a machine to be built after a model and set to do exactly the work prescribed for it, this is Mill, but a tree which requires to grow according to the tendency of the inward forces which make it a living thing. His metaphor makes the constraints apparent. A tree, whatever the circumstances, doesn't become a legume, a vine, or for that matter, a sheep. The reasonable middle view is that constructing an identity is a good thing, if self-authorship is a good thing, but that the identity must make some kind of human sense. And for it to make sense, it must be an identity constructed in response to facts outside oneself, things that are beyond one's own will one's own choices. Some philosophers, Sartre among them, have tried to combine both the romantic and the existentialist views, as Michel Foucault suggested some years ago, I'm quoting, Sartre avoids the idea of the self as something that is given to us, but through the moral notion of authenticity, he turns back to the idea that we have to be ourselves to be truly our true self. I, this is Foucault, think the only acceptable practical consequences of what Sartre has said is to link his theoretical insight to the practice of creativity and not to that of authenticity. From the idea that the self is not given to us, I think there is only one practical consequence. We have to create ourselves as a work of art." Quote. Now, Foucault in this passage speaks of creativity 
without perhaps sufficiently acknowledging the role of the materials in which our creativity is exercised. As Charles Taylor notes, I can define my identity only against the background of things that matter. But to bracket out nature, history, society, the demands of solidarity, everything but what I find in myself, would be to eliminate all the candidates for what matters. Let me propose a thought experiment that might dissuade those who speak of self-choice as the ultimate value. Suppose it were possible through some sort of instantaneous quasi-genetic engineering to change any aspect of your nature so that you could have any combination of capacities that has ever been within the range of human possibility. You could have Michael Jordan's fadeaway shot, like that, or Mozart's musicality, or Groucho Marx's comic gifts, or Proust's delicate way with language. Suppose you could put these together with any desires you wanted, homo or hetero, a taste for Wagner or for Eminem. <laughs> you might walk into the metamorphosis chamber whistling the overture to the Val Valkyrie and walk out humming, will the real slim shady please stand up? <laughs> Suppose further that there were no careers or professions in this world because all material needs and services were met by intelligent machines. Far from being a utopia, so it seems to me, this would clearly be a kind of hell. There would be no reason to choose any of these options because there would be no achievement in putting together a life. One way of explaining why this life would be meaningless is, comes in a very famous passage from Nietzsche. One thing is needful to give style to one's character, a great and rare art. It's practiced by those who survey all the strengths and weaknesses of their nature and then fit them into an artistic plan until every one of them appears as art and reason and even weaknesses delight the eye. Here a large mass of second nature has been added. There a piece of original nature has been removed, both times through long practice and daily work at it. Here the ugly that could not be removed is concealed. There, I think this is the best passage, there it has been reinterpreted and made sublime. To create a life is to create a life out of the materials that history has given you. As we saw, Mill's rhetoric just juxtaposes the value of self-authorship with the value of achieving our capacities, perhaps because the former can seem arbitrary. But once it's tied to something out of our control, once our self-construction is seen as a creative response to our capacities and circumstances, then the accusation of arbitrariness loses its power. Thinking about the capacities and circumstances that history has, in fact, given each of us also allows us to address the worry about the unsociability of the individuated self. The language of identity reminds us to what extent we are, again in Charles Taylor's formulation, dialogically constituted. Beginning in infancy, it's in dialogue with other people's understandings of who I am that I develop a conception of myself. We come into the world mewling and puking in our mother's arms, as Shakespeare so genially put it, <laughs> capable of human individuality, but only if we have the chance to develop it in interaction with others. An identity is always articulated through concepts and practices made available to you by religion, society, school and state, mediated by family, peers, friends. Indeed, the very material out of which our identities are shaped is provided in part by what Taylor has called our language in a broad sense, comprising quote, not only the words we speak, but also other modes of expression whereby we define ourselves, including the languages of art, of gesture, of love, and the like. 
I've always found it very hard to fill in that and the like. <laughs> but art and gesture and love will do. It follows that the self whose choices liberalism celebrates is not a pre-social thing, not some authentic inner essence independent of the human world into which we've grown, but rather the product of our interaction from our earliest years with others. As a result, individuality presupposes sociability, not just a grudging respect for the individuality of others. A free self is a human self, and we are, as Aristotle long ago insisted, creatures of the polis, social beings. We're social in many ways and for many reasons, because we desire company, because we depend on one another for survival, because so much that we care about is collectively created. To value individuality properly just is to acknowledge the, the dependence of the good for each of us on relationships with others. Without these bonds, as I say, we couldn't come to be free selves, not least because we even come, couldn't come to be selves at all. Throughout our lives, part of the material we're responding to in shaping ourselves is not within us, but outside us, there in the social world. Most people shape their identities as partners of lovers who become spouses and fellow parents. These aspects of our identities, though in a sense social, are peculiar to who we are as individuals and so represent a more personal dimension of our identities. But we are all, as well, members of broader collectivities. To say that collective identities, that is, the collective dimensions of our individual identities, are responses to something outside ourselves, is to say that they're the products of histories and our engagement with them invokes capacities that are not totally under our own control. Yet they're social not just because they involve others, but because they're constituted in part by socially transmitted conceptions of how a person of this or that identity properly behaves. In constructing an identity, one draws, among other things, on the kinds of person available in uh, one's society. Of course, there isn't just one way that gay or straight people or blacks or whites or men or women are to behave, but there are ideas around, contested many of them, but all ideas in these contests shape our options, about how gay, straight, black, white, male or female people ought to conduct themselves. These notions provide loose norms or models which play a role in shaping our plans of life. Collective identities, in short, provide what we might call scripts, narratives that people can use in shaping their life plans and in telling their life stories. To be sure, an emphasis on how we make sense of our lives, ourselves, through narrative, is shared by a number of philosophers, Charles Taylor and Alastair MacIntyre among them, who worry that conventional versions of liberal uh, theory scant this social matrix in which our identities take shape. At the same time, the language of life plans resonates with their insistence that to live our lives as agents requires that we see our actions and experiences as belonging to something like a story. For Charles Taylor, it is, quote, a basic condition of making sense of ourselves that we grasp our lives in a narrative. Narrative, then, is not an optional extra. For McIntyre, it's because, quote, we understand our own lives in terms of the narratives that we live out, that the form of narrative is appropriate for understanding the actions of others. As he argues, each of us, sorry, each of our shorter-term intentions is and can only be made intelligible by reference to some longer-term intentions. Hence, the behavior is only characterized adequately when we know what the longer and longest-term intentions are and how the shorter-term intentions are related to the longer. Once again, we are involved in writing a narrative history. 
That's the end of the quote. Such concerns, as I hope I've established, aren't foreign to the sort of liberalism that Mill, at least, sought to promulgate. So we should acknowledge how much our personal histories, the stories we tell of where we have been and where we are going, are constructed, like novels and movies, short stories and folktales, within narrative conventions. Indeed, one of the things that film or literature does for us, I think, is to provide models for telling our lives. At the same time, part of the function of our collective identities, of the whole repertory of them that a society makes available to its members, is to structure possible narratives of the individual self. Now, I made a distinction just now between personal and collective dimensions of identity, but both play a role in these stories of the self. But only the collective identities have what I'm calling scripts, and only they count as what the philosopher, Canadian philosopher Ian Hacking, meant by when he spoke about um, kinds of person. Uh, there's a logical category, but no social category of the witty, or the clever, or the charming, or the greedy. People who share these properties do not constitute a social group. In the relevant sense, they are not a kind of person. In our society, though not perhaps in the England of Addison and Steele, being witty does not, for example, suggest the life script of someone called a wit. And the main reason, this is a matter for some regret, I think, <laughs> and the main reason why the personal dimensions are different is that they're not dependent on labeling. While intelligence in our society is of the first social importance, people could be intelligent even if no one had the concept of intelligence. To say that race is socially constructed, that an African-American is, indeed, in hacking sense, a kind of person, is in part to say that there are no African-Americans independently of social practices of response to a racial label. By contrast, there could certainly be clever people even if we didn't have the concept of cleverness. How does identity so conceived fit into our broader moral projects? One view is this. There are many things of value in the world. Their value is objective. They are important whether or not anybody recognizes they're important. But there's no way of ranking these many goods or trading them off against one another, so there's not always, all things considered, a best thing to do. As a result, we have many morally permissible options. One thing identity provides is another source of value, one thing that helps us make our way among these options. To adopt an identity, to make it mine, is to see it as structuring my way through life. That is, my identity has patterns built into it, so Mill is wrong when he implies that it is always better to be different from others. Patterns that help me think about my life. One such simple pattern, for example, is the pattern of a career, which ends, if you live long enough, with retirement. But identities also create forms of solidarity. If I think of myself as an X, then sometimes the mere fact that somebody else is an X too may incline me to do something with or for them, where X might be woman, black, American. Now, solidarity with those who share your identity might be thought of as, other things being equal, a good thing. As such, there's a universal value of solidarity, but it works out in different ways for different people because different people have different identities. Or it might be thought to be a good thing because we enjoy it. And other things being equal, it's good for people to have and do what they enjoy having and doing. As we've seen, however, many values are internal to an identity. They are among the values someone who has that identity must take into account, but they're not values for people who don't have that identity. If they didn't have the identity, that thing would not be a value for them. 
take the value of ritual purity as conceived of by some Orthodox Jews. They think they should keep kosher because they are Jewish. They don't expect anyone who is not a Jew to do so, and they may not even think it would be a good thing if non-Jews did. It's a good thing only for those who are or those who become Jewish. And they do not think that it would be a better world if everybody did become Jewish. The covenant, after all, is with the children of Israel. Similarly, we might think that the identity of being a nationalist in a struggle against colonial domination makes it valuable for you to risk your life for the liberation of your country, as Nathan Hale did, regretting that he had only one of them to give. If you're not a nationalist, you might still die advancing a country's cause, and then, while some good might come of it, the good wouldn't be, so to speak, a good for you. We might regard your life as wasted, just because you didn't identify with the nation you had died advancing. There are thus various ways that identity might be a source of value, rather than being something that realizes other values. First, if an identity is yours, it may determine certain acts of solidarity as valuable, or be an internal part of the specification of your satisfactions and enjoyments, or motivate and give meaning to acts of supererogatory kindness. Indeed, the presence of an identity concept in the specification of my aim, as helping a fellow bearer of some identity, may be part of what explains why I have the aim at all. Someone may gain satisfaction from giving money to the Red Cross after a hurricane in Florida as an act of solidarity with other Cuban Americans. Here, the fact of the shared identity is part of why he or she has the aim. By the same token, a shared identity may give certain acts or achievements a value for me that they wouldn't otherwise have had. In the rare event that a Ghanaian team wins the African Cup of Nations in soccer, this is of value to me in virtue of my identity as a Ghanaian. If I were a Catholic, a wedding in a Catholic church might be of value to me in a special way, because I was a Catholic. There are still other ways in which the success of our projects, not to mention our having those projects at all, might derive from a social identity. Since human beings are social creatures, Mill writes, they are, quote, familiar with the fact that cooperating with others and proposing to others, proposing to themselves a collective, not an individual interest, as the aim, at least for the time being, of their actions. So long as they are cooperating, their ends are identified with those of others. There is at least a temporary feeling that the interests of others are their own interests. End of quote. Projects and commitments may involve collective intentions, as with a religious ritual that requires the coordinated involvement of one's fellow worshippers for its realization. A social project may involve the creation or recreation of an identity in the way that Elijah Muhammad sought to redefine the American Negro's collective self-understanding, or the way that deaf activists seek to construct a group identity that supervenes upon the condition of uh, not hearing. For Theodor Herzl, Success depended on creating a sense of national consciousness among a people who might never have conceived of themselves, at least in his terms, as belonging to a common nation. But a common pursuit may involve much smaller scale groups of 20 or 10 or 2. Quote, when two persons have their thoughts and speculations completely in common, when all subjects of intellectual or moral interest are discussed between them in daily life, when they set out from the same principles and arrive in their conclusions by processes pursued jointly, Mill wrote of the composition of On Liberty, it is of little consequence in respect of the question of originality, which of them holds the pen. The picture of self-creation we've been tracing puts identity at the heart of human life. 
a theory of politics, I think, ought to take this picture seriously. That alone doesn't settle much in the way of practicalities, but the picture is one that we can develop and explore in trying to negotiate the political world we share. Reflection on what individuality means for politics is also at the center of my current work. As Brutus was called the last of the Romans, Mill wrote of his father, so was he the last of the 18th century. John Stuart himself sought a careful equipoise among the various climates of thought through which he lived. It was what made him both deeply constant and deeply wayward. And yet this very equipoise, this sense of balance, ensured that on liberty would not immediately enjoy the reception that Mill might have hoped for his and Harriet's grand projet. None of my writings have been either so carefully composed or so sedulously corrected as this, Mill recounted in his autobiography. After it had been written, as usual, twice over, we kept going through it de novo, reading, weighing, and criticizing every sentence. Its final revision was to have been a work of the winter of 1858-9, the first after my retirement, which we had arranged to pass in the south of Europe. That hope and every other were frustrated by the most unexpected and bitter calamity of her death at Avignon on our way to Montpellier from a sudden attack of pulmonary congestion. A few weeks later, Mill sent the manuscript of On Liberty to his publisher, For the recently bereaved author, the book was as much a mortuary as a monument. To us who have known what it is to be with her and to belong to her, this silly phantasmagoria of human life, devoid of her, would be utterly meaningless and unendurably wearisome were there not some still things to do in which she wished done and some public and other objects which she cared for and in which, therefore, it is still possible to keep up some degree of interest, he wrote to a friend. I've been publishing some of her opinions, and I hope to employ what remains to me of life, if I'm able to retain my health, in continuing to work for them and to spread them, though with sadly diminished powers now that I no longer have her to prompt and guide me. In his autobiography, he wrote of Harriet's role in his life, of their common pursuit, in terms that are almost the reciprocal of the robust individuality that he endorsed, or they endorsed, in On Liberty. My objects in life are solely those which were hers, my pursuits and occupations, those in which she shared or sympathized, and which are indissolubly associated with her. Her memory is to me a religion, and her approbation the standard by which, summing up as it does all worthiness, I endeavor to regulate my life. It is the language of religious devotion, abjection, heteronomy, self-abnegation. And yet I think it doesn't cut against his commitment to individuality, so much as a test to the profoundly social nature of individuality the dialogical nature of individuality as Mill understood it. He was attentive to just those forms of collective intention that were omitted from his father's more individualist, agent-centered view of politics. Deprived of the company of his peers as a child, he tirelessly established societies and reviews as a young man, fraternal associations of politics and culture. And the associations that mattered to him, that gave meaning to his endeavors, were not just fraternal. What had been diminished in his own account by the loss of his life companion and of their common pursuit was precisely his individuality. It did not still his pen. The ends of life may have been revisable, but they were not perishable. And Mill himself, object and subject of so many bold experiments, a man whom all manner of visionary from Bentham to Carlyle to Kant sought and failed to enlist as a disciple, had a keen sense that influence went only so far and communion was always incomplete. If no person was wholly author of himself, neither could a person be wholly authored by someone else. 
quote, we cannot indeed directly will to be different from what we are, as he wrote, but neither did those, this is the passage I read before, neither did those who are supposed to have formed our character directly will that we should be what we are. Nobody knew better than Mill how one's life plan could be elevated when fused into a common pursuit as it was uh, with Mrs. Taylor. But at the same time, nobody knew better how readily the attempt to promote another's excellence could become an oppression. As he wrote in words of particular resonance to him in his own life, let any man call to mind what he himself felt on emerging from boyhood, from the tutelage and control of even loved and affectionate elders, and entering upon the responsibilities of manhood. Was it not like the physical effect of taking off a heavy weight, of releasing him from obstructive, even if not otherwise painful, bonds? Did he not feel twice as much alive, twice as much a human being, as before? Mill famously celebrated freedom from government and from public opinion. But what we see here is how much he also believed that in the business of making a life, in shaping your individuality, However many common pursuits you have, you must, in the end, find freedom even from the good intentions of those who love you. However social the individuality that Mill prized was, it was, in the end, still individuality. The responsibility in each life is always the responsibility of the person whose life it is. Thank you. Answer questions. James asked whether I was willing. I'm not sure that I. I'm not sure that's the same question. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Questions. Yes. Yes. Um, how how did Mill remain utilitarian and, and as you said, weight, uh, well-being, happiness with, with achieving wants and desires after you know, the breakdown? Um, well, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a Mill scholar and making, um, I do have the 33 volumes of the collected works and trying to make them consistent with one another. It's not a project that I'm planning to engage myself in. Uh, I, I think my view is that On Liberty is not consistent with even the very sophisticated version of utilitarianism that, that Mill uh, advocated. What Mill did, believed in most deeply was what he called self-development, and he thought he had a form of utilitarianism that was consistent with that idea. Um, but he also had views about, for example, what, um, what we ought to aim at, what, what we ought to value, just don't seem consistent with the idea that what makes something valuable is our uh, caring about it or our uh, or it's satisfying some desire about it. Something. He had views about what desires we ought to have, and he had views about uh, what forms of uh, about the relative value of different kinds of desires, and so on. So I, I just um, uh, you can't say that it's inconsistent with utilitarianism because then you because there are so many utilitarianisms, uh, but. I, I, I think it's 
certainly I don't find it helpful or easy to read on liberty as um, a utilitarian defense of free, free uh, of rights and uh, freedoms. Um, I think that uh, it'd be hard to get the, the, the sort of full force and vigor of his defense of the idea that each of us must make his or her own way um, from, from at least the standard forms of utilitarian framework, I think. So, so, my, so that's a long answer. The short answer is he didn't. <laughs> Autonomy as self-government or self-authorship or self-mastery. One of the things that seems to presuppose is the conception that the human person is divided against itself. That is to say, there's, a, there's an author. That there's that dimension of ourself, which is author, and that dimension which is author, or master and master. And one of the one of the new, very old stories that we told about this divide is to identify author more or less with the rational faculty. It seems to me that one of the strengths of Mill's Um, I don't have an answer to the question how to uh, how to state Mill's uh, best theory of this. Um, I think that um, uh, it's clear that Mill doesn't identify uh, himself with his rational faculty, though the exercise of capacities of discrimination and so on is central to his conception of what it is to lead a good life. Uh, so it's not that he's um, an enemy of reason, um, but uh, I think he rightly saw that if you take, if, if reason is just understood as, the, as a kind of computational uh, faculty, then uh, you couldn't really identify the self with that because there has to be something for the computations to be about. Uh, so there have to be things beyond reason. Now, um, of course, there are other ways of thinking about reason, um, and Mill was in an intellectual atmosphere in which some of those other ways of thinking about reason were part of the uh, part of uh, what people knew about. Um, but as I say, I don't have a view about. Um, I, I haven't set out to try and understand that particular um, thing in Mill. I think I, I mean, it's a hard enough question to figure out without trying to figure out what Mill thought about. <laughs> Do you think that Mill personally achieved individuality at all, or did he just drift from dependence on his father to dependence on Mrs. Taylor? <laughs> um, 
I'm sorry if the way I told it sounded as though that was a possible, that was a possible account. Uh, because if you, if you look at his life, and if you look at his life, say, at uh, the India office and his work there, I mean, she had not much to do with that, and he was a very powerful figure in shaping British policy in relation to India over a very long period. He was, uh, when he was in Parliament, he was very much his own man. Um, uh, so, no, I don't, I don't think he, he, uh, um, he um, as it were, just transferred as it were, cathected onto her, having, having decathected from his dad. Um, I don't think that's, I, I think the autobiography as a whole is not consistent with, with that view. And as I say, I don't think that, um, somehow we have to understand individuality in such a way as to allow it to be something that permits of people being engaged very intimately and in, I was calling common pursuits with other people, including their life partners. And that seems to me something that Mill gets right. Um, uh, though, as I say, in the end, he says, you know, you must, even those you love and those who love you, um, can't take away from you the responsibility of uh, managing your own life. So that, that's the point of the passage that I was reading at the end, I think. Though it, it was about his father, not about his, his, his um, love. Can the ethics of identity on the version you've given, or the million version, be in conflict with justice? I mean, one of Mill's um, limits in the story that um, you tell, which and the way I read him as well and his indebtedness to his father is that um, he always imagined creativity and diversity and individual development in being at the very least not incompatible with justice. And he probably doesn't imagine it very incompatible with utilitarian version no. of justice. But forget about these Can it be what needs to be added or understood in the version you give so that the group, I the group identities people have, all the examples you give are at the very least compatible with justice. Mm. They're not in any direct incompatibility um, with it. So, but there could, so far you haven't said yes. anything that would suggest that they couldn't be quite directly and in a very, um, Right. I mean, and, you know, Aryan nation is a, is a form of identity, um, which, um, to the extent that I understand it, uh, is defined in part in terms of doing things that are intrinsically immoral, like dominating people of other of other racial identities. Creative, not ones that are mimicking. Okay. So the more Nietzschean. Well, um, I have two thoughts about this. And one is that I think that, that you, can, you can find forms of identity that have built into them a kind of... And, um, okay, let me do this in two stages. My, my first instinct, of course, is to say um, the pursuit of individuality, this is not Nietzsche, this pursuit of individuality is constrained by 
the requirement that you first do your duty, what's morally required of you, uh, for, uh, where, where morality focuses on our obligations to others. Um, so that's the first step. Uh, the trouble is I don't believe that, um, though I did um, when it first suggested to me as a formulation. Uh, I don't believe because I can think of cases where, um, where there are clear moral demands which I can clearly satisfy at the expense of something that's central to uh, the pursuit of my, my individuality. I make, I make a promise to someone to meet them for coffee. It's a clear moral obligation uh, to, to uh, keep your promises. Men shall perform their promises made, Hobbes right? Um, but it turns out that at that time, and I'm unable to communicate with her, at that time, um, I have the opportunity to uh, meet someone, uh, that, uh, perhaps the only opportunity I'll ever have to meet someone whose work inspires me and who will, uh, I hope, uh, provide me with the ideas that will move me on to the next level of my work, my, my own self-development. Um, and I'm not defending this because my own self-development will, will result in greater good for somebody else. It's my self-development under uh, the concept under which I understand what is on offer. I think you'd have to be a weird kind of um, sort of moral um, either narcissist or um, sort of morally oddly focused to think that in that case it was clear that just because one demand was moral and the other was had to do with individuality, it should um, the, uh, the, the demand of individuality should lose. Now, but if you if you start talking about justice, it sounds as though you're talking about as it were, on the one hand, my individuality, on the other hand, the pillage of nations, the destruction, <laughs> the destruction of, uh, you know, um, you know the ab abolition of motherhood and apple pie. Um, uh, so, so I'm inclined to say, look, any reasonable person will, has to accept that, that, that um, what's valuable about individuality is valuable in everybody. The fact that I'm pursuing mine doesn't mean that other people's don't matter to me. Everybody's matter. And if in the pursuit of mine I do something that isn't consonant with my recognition that everybody's matter, then I've passed over some uh, moral boundary, I think. So in, in this case of the, of the broken promise about the coffee meeting, I don't think I've, I've, I've behaved in a way that's inconsistent with the recognition of the importance of the projects of the other person uh, whom I promised to meet. So that, that would be my current uh, budge on that one. Mark. Yeah, I, I was interested in uh, your attempt to clarify the notion of identity by way of formula uh, to speak of living as to speak of an identity. And I was wondering if you meant that, as it seems quite genuine, uh, that is, at least when somebody is planning to live something like that, it's a key mm -hmm. identity in the morally relevant sense of your article. Because I thought there was some differences with precisely that idea. Um, okay. There are a range of cases where people are um, coerced by circumstances. Um, perhaps not so much coerced, but um, the requirements of implementing a plan require that they live as such and so. But it doesn't enter into their identity and moral development as well. So, for example, somebody on the run might plan to live as a vagabond. Or to take it 
historic uh, Kim Phil certainly planned to live in the city but at the same time then he added counterintelligence in the West and he was trying to let the KGB and secret and receive the Lenin medal though he was planning and in a way voluntarily planning to live in the civil service that wasn't his identity at all his identity Um, part of what you're drawing attention to is the possibility of it's being correct to describe someone as living as, some, as an ex uh, where they don't identify with um, ex, exness or being an ex uh, and, and where that form of identification is the relevant form of moral identification. I, I think that's right. I think that the key question is for... I mean, it's not that I don't think these are identities. I mean, I... Um, I think there's a perfectly good sense in which his identity was as a civil servant, but it's not the relevant sense for understanding um, the, 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 the making of a life that he was engaged in. Um, so, this, the, the, so I just think that's right. Um, there, we do speak of living as uh, in a kind of undercover living as kind of way. And um, uh, that just brings out, the fact that you can do that brings out the importance of identification as a central um, uh, element. And, and in my sort of full-fledged account of identity, there are these three components. There's the um, social uh, practices of um, labeling people as exes. There's um, differential treatment of people in virtue of their being exes. Not, not that everybody responds in the same way, but that some people respond in some way to your being an ex. And there's what I call identification, which is um, it's being the case that your being an ex sometimes gives you a ground reason for doing something. So you think of yourself as an ex, and, that's, and that form of identification is, I think, central to to real moral identity. Yes, and it, it isn't there in, in, in the Toby case. Good. Peter, we have one time for one last question, and Peter. Um, I'd like to hear a bit more about uh, how you would ground the value of identity. I mean, it seems like you, as you said, Mill thought that he could do it within a utilitarian framework. Um, well, I think there are two very different kinds of normative consideration that play a central role in, sort of in, in a big decision. Uh, one is uh, the set of demands that other people have, have on, uh, make on us, our, our obligations to respect their, uh, their interests and things that the duties we have to others. And the other is a set of things that I'm happy to call duties to oneself. Um, it, I think identity is, um, uh, as I, in ways that I suggested, uh, comes to be important in um, how we treat others because uh, it creates mechanisms of solidarity, for example, and uh, mechanisms of, of identification with pe people which lead you to do things I made a, a glancing aside remark about supererogatory 
um, acts of generosity. I think a large part of the supererogatory generosity in the world, that is generosity beyond what duty demands of us, is in fact works by way of identification with people with shared identity. But, so I don't deny that identity ends up figuring in in what I was calling the moral, the things that have to do with how you should treat others. But, um, But I think it's deeply central to this obligation we have to make make a life for ourselves, to make a life that makes sense. Uh, and um, identities are one of the central armatures of, of that process, I think. Um, it's, it's as, uh, as uh, people with certain identities, as men, as uh, citizens of this place or that place, as members of this or that community, and this or that family, uh, identifying with these that we um, make our way through life. We decide what, uh, how we shall uh, define who we are as uh, professional identifications, as, as philosophers or, or doctors or um, you know, bus drivers. I mean, these are all um, um, central, I think, to uh, creating an intelligible life. And the importance of creating an intelligible life it's important for everybody, and therefore it matters for the moral thing, because we need to create a world in which everybody can have an intelligible life. But my, as well, each of us, I think, and Milford, has a primary responsibility for creating an intelligible life of their own. Um, what, the, what we owe others is a social world in which they can do it too. I hope all of you will join me once again uh, in thanking uh, Professor Appiah for a remarkable uh, afternoon and lecture. And there are refreshments outside uh, to continue the discussion for a few minutes more. Thank you.